Strange Brew Podcast, Season 1, Episode 108. Finally. Finally! We have a Packer game on a Sunday. It's been three long weeks since we've had the Packers on Sunday. After a bye week, we're looking for a bounce back. We're looking for some rhythm. We're looking for better play calling. We're looking for better play from Jordan Love. It sounds like Aaron Jones should be back, and hopefully they get him the ball enough. All of that leading up to Sunday's matchup, Packers are one-point favorites. We're also going to sprinkle in one of my favorite Packer-Bronco memories. Remember we did the countdown of my personal favorite Packer-Bear matchups heading into week one? We did five of them, one per week. We don't have to do that every week, but why can't we do one fun memory of every matchup every week? We'll get into the history archives every week. What other archives would there be, John? Other than history archives, that's why they're archives. Well, why not sprinkle one of those in every week, too? I've got a 1993 memory of a Packer-Bronco game that I really enjoyed as a kid. We'll get into that. We've got some Bucks drama that kind of came out of nowhere with Terry Stotts resigning on Thursday. We'll break all of that down. We've got the audio of Adrian Grippen's interview about that after practice on Thursday. Badgers are set for the Brett Bielema rematch. Hopefully a bounce back from last year's disaster at Camp Randall. They're at Illinois with Braden Locke getting the start on Saturday. We'll set it all up. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. In time! Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown, Wisconsin, record-breaking run. Morgan, a smash up the middle, base hit the center, here comes Gomez, around third, a throw, and the Brewers win. Here's the snap, he looks, he throws, it's incomplete, and there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker, the drive, gets inside, leads in. Before we jump into all that, I'm just closing out some tabs in here. For B93 on Saturday, Arby's is doing a grand reopening in Sheboygan. Feels like an Arby's. What do you want to eat? Feels like an Arby's night. Was that the car salesman episode where Buddy becomes a car salesman and they're negotiating their relationship and they get down to Arby's once a week? Anyway, they're doing a whole reopening thing, and we're doing a remote broadcast from 11 till 1 on Saturday. If you're a B93 listener listening to this podcast or a Sheboygan listener, come find us. 11 till 1 Saturday afternoon. Should be a fun time. Anyway, we were talking about that on the air and promoting it. In the midst of that conversation, I remembered one of the great fast food deals ever. I don't even know I was going to put a date parameter on it, but it is just simply one of the greatest fast food deals of all time. And that was the Arby's 5 for 5. Who remembers the Arby's 5 for 5? They went away, I want to say, in 2009 or 2010. I used to get these things all the time. I remember even in the era where they existed, I thought, this is robbery. And I found one of the old advertisements that promoted it. It was a pick five for $5.95. And you could mix and match any of these. They had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight options. You could do five of one option, one of... Every five, you could put them together any way you wanted to. And you could pick from an Arby's melt, a beef and cheddar, a ham melt, 
curly fries, Mott sticks, a small shake. You could have gotten four sandwiches and a shake, a cherry turnover, potato cakes, or a soft drink. Pick any of those, any mix and match, $5.95. That was it. I would go and I'd get two Arby's melts and two ham melts and a soda, four sandwiches and a soda for $6. And it went away. It had to. And I didn't mean to be disparaging at all about Arby's on the air when I was talking about it. That's not what I meant. I was just fondly remembering a great deal. There's no way they could have done that. They couldn't sustain that model with food prices today. They'd go out of business. They'd be declaring bankruptcy. I didn't say it. I declared it. They'd be out of money in a year if they kept on doing that. I think the deal now is two for $10, which just doesn't hit the same way as five for five. We used to be a country. We used to be a proper country with a $5.95 Arby's deal where you could get five sandwiches for $6 in tax. What a crazy deal that was. Used to get that thing all the time. Anyway, what do you want to start? Let's hop into, do you just want to touch on the bucks quick? What a weird story that was on Friday or Thursday? Today's Friday. Thursday. All of a sudden on Twitter, Shams and Woj and all the big NBA Twitter accounts had the news that Bucks assistant coach Terry Stotts was stepping down less than a week before the year begins. Bizarre. Very peculiar. Terry Stotts made sense as an assistant coach for a lot of reasons when they signed him before the year began, as did Joe Prunty, another old Bucks assistant coach and interim coach. He's still on this team so far. We'll see if we make it through today. They brought back Stotts, though. Adrian Gritman is a first-year head coach. It made sense to have a guy like Stotts, like Prunty, that have some head coaching experience, have a lot of assistant coach experience to help him along in his first year with a championship-caliber team. Not to mention, Stotts has that history with the Bucks. He was the lead assistant for George Carl. I think we talked about it on the podcast after he came back. They had that famous segment on FSN at halftime, Stats with Stotts. And then he was the head coach for the Bucks for a couple of years, made a playoff appearance one time, I think Andrew Bogut's rookie year. And after a nice long run in Portland, that wore out, and they never could quite get past the second round of the playoffs or the Western Conference Finals one time. They moved on. It just it made a lot of sense on a lot of levels. And they hired him before they got Dame, but then when they acquired Dame, it made even more sense because that was his head coach for nine seasons in Portland. In fact, Dame already this year has talked about how comfortable he is in the offense. That's what Stotts was, essentially, the offensive coordinator. Dame talked about how comfortable he was in the offense because it's the offense he played for almost a decade under Stotts, and he's been on record as saying that he likes Terry Stotts. So that all married up together well. For that reason, it was even more shocking that he stepped away this close to the beginning of the year. And the rumor started to fly immediately on Twitter that there must have been some disagreement between Adrian Griffin and Terry Stotts, and that does sound like it's the case. This, to me, though, sounds more like Terry Stotts didn't fully buy into being an assistant coach again after he had been a head coach for so long. Here's the report from The Athletic. Here's what happened. I'll just read it to you. It said, according to sources who witnessed the events, Griffin wrapped up a shoot-around practice and called the team together for a huddle to close out the day and let the players get into their post-shoot-around shooting drills. During that huddle, Griffin informed the coaches that he wanted to have a separate huddle with them once they wrap things up. So we've got the huddle, then the players break away, then a separate coaches huddle. When the players and coaches broke the original huddle, Stotts went in the opposite direction of the coaches huddle and instead started walking toward the players to discuss the offense. As Stotts attempted to start a conversation with Lillard and Giannis, Griffin called to Stotts to join the coaching huddle. He's the head coach. 
When Stotts asked for some time with the players, Griffin yelled for Stotts to join the coach's huddle. The incident occurred in front of the entire team, sources said. While brief, the interaction highlighted the underlying complexity of the relationship between Griffin and Stotts in their first year together in Milwaukee. Seems like sort of a nothing burger, but based on what we've heard since Stotts got hired, and this is the first time they've worked together, and it does sound like there was a little bit of organizational pressure on Griffin as a first-year head coach to hire some veteran leadership on the bench. But up until this point, we had heard nothing but glowing commentary about Stotts from Adrian Griffin. Clearly, though, this put a schism in their relationship. And here's what Griffin had to say in the post-huddle, in the post-practice, post-huddle, post-coaches huddle, after practice on Thursday. This definitely felt like he was kind of forcing a smile and sort of tongue-in-cheek and hinting at... Was part of the discussion with him or or his decision with you to, to do it now, to do this now as opposed to maybe January or February? You know what I mean? No, I... I you know, it, it was Terry's decision, and I respected that. Uh, we did have a, a great conversation. Um, I can't disclose, you know, what we we spoke about ah. out of respect for him. But um, again, we we support him, and you know, we're still excited about the season. Uh, we got a great team and great staff, and uh, life is good. Maybe that doesn't come through as well in the audio, but when you see his face and the kind of smirk, you can tell they had just a little bit of a falling out, and they both decided that's that. I love how he said I couldn't disclose the conversation. I can't disclose the part where I put Terry in his place. I really put Terry in a corner, and for his health, I don't want to bring that up in front of everybody. That's what it feels like. Griffin does sort of have a standoffish mentality, it feels like, at least initially with the media. He's a gruff guy. He's an alpha. He's an alpha for sure. And I wonder if that was a part of why the two couldn't quite get along in the first month. I actually think this is a good thing, as weird as it was to digest initially. My gut reaction, if I'm honest, is, who boy, don't love that. Don't love a first-year head coach who already has had some weird interactions with the media. Don't love the fact that an experienced assistant and former head coach is leaving this close to the year, clearly because he's not getting along with the head coach. There are just a little nuggets of Adrian Griffin that have got my antenna up, and that would be the biggest. The more I think about it, though, it is better to do this now. This is like if you were a director on a movie, and you had somebody cast for a role, and it was okay, and it kind of made sense like Terry Stotts. You ever see the footage of Eric Stoltz as Marty McFly in Back to the Future? Not necessarily totally comparable with this situation because Terry Stotts is not Marty McFly. He's not the main character, but you know what I mean. It's very odd to see the footage of Eric Stoltz as Marty McFly. They cast him from the sounds of it in the interviews I've seen. No one was totally sure that he was going to be the guy. It just made the most sense based on the casting they had done so far. And then they say as the filming went on and they got pretty far down the road with the movie, it just became clear that he wasn't the guy and they needed to go back to the drawing board and eventually they land on Michael J. Fox. They had to restart the entire thing. But they were months down the road at that point of filming the movie. And if you load up the footage of Eric Stoltz as Marty McFly in Back to the Future, it's jarring. It just makes you feel odd because it's an iconic movie and we're so used to seeing Michael J. Fox in that role. This is what I mean. Do it now. Do it now. If Eric Stoltz isn't the guy, if Terry Stotts isn't the guy, don't let this get down the road and say, I think we can still make it work. Or we've got some personal differences or some philosophical basketball differences, but we can figure those out as the season goes on. And then you get to January or February and we're knocking on the door of the playoffs and you've got this championship caliber team that's the favorite to win the NBA title. 
things aren't necessarily jiving at that point, it's too late. It's too late to pull that ripcord when you get to January, February, or March. Better for this to all happen now before the season begins and for them to adjust before the season than for it to happen in two or three months. I do think this is probably the best-case scenario for what is a strange situation less than a week before the year begins. We did get some updates, too, for tonight's game. If you're listening to this on Friday, the last preseason game of the year is tonight. I was surprised Damon Giannis played at Oklahoma City on Tuesday. I think it was the last podcast we had on Monday. We were talking about Dame's debut against L.A. on Sunday night, and my feeling was on Monday's podcast that they were done that. Put him in shrink wrap. You don't want him to get hurt and save them for the regular season. They were back out there on Tuesday. They got their doors blown off. Dame had kind of a bad shooting day. Is Dame washed? <laughs> Let's throw that out there. You saw plenty of that on Twitter. He had a 3-for-10 shooting day in L.A., a 2-for-11 shooting day in OKC. Hmm. Maybe the maybe the Blazers were on to something to get rid of him. No, he's going to be fine. He's going to be great like he always is. I was just surprised that they played in OKC, and they're going to play tonight too. I like that, though, too. Typically with a team like the Bucks especially over the past two or three years where they're a championship-caliber team, you get so worried about having your key players out there in the preseason because what if they get hurt? There are different stumbling blocks, though, this year than we've had the previous couple of years. As good as Dame is, Hall of Fame guard. As good as Giannis is, Hall of Fame forward. As good as Middleton is, and Lopez, Defensive Player of the Year caliber, and Middleton, multiple-time All-Star and NBA champion. As good as they all are on paper... This is not going to be like last year or the year before where you know what you're getting into. The chemistry has been built. The players know what to expect from each other. The roles are pretty defined. This is going to be a little fluid to begin the year. The more court time they get and the more practice they get on the floor together to build that up, at this point, the better, even if you are risking an injury here or there in the preseason or in early games in October, November, December. This team needs time on the court together, and it's probably going to be a little bit uneven. This is another segment of John talking to himself in the mirror. We're going to do another segment like this. The expectation bar is so high. It's a championship-caliber team, and a lot of Bucks fans, probably myself on some level, you're hoping they're going to come out and just blow the doors off of people. Dame's going to be averaging 30 a game. Giannis is going to be averaging 30 a game. Offense is going to be cooking like the 92 Dream Team, and they're going to be blowing people out by 20 or 30 points. The reality is this is going to take some time. Even think back to the first Heatles year, the first year where Wade and LeBron and Bosch were all on the same team in Miami. They were 500 for the first half of the year. I think they were 20-20 and 20 or 21-20 and 20 through the first 40 games, even with all of that Hall of Fame all-time great talent in the prime of their careers. This is going to take a little bit at the beginning of the year. It wouldn't shock me if they're 5-5 five and five through their first 10 games or 4-6 and six through their first 10 games. They've got a bit of a tough schedule to begin the year as well. There is going to be a learning curve here despite the amount of talent they have on that team. And then you also factor in a first-year head coach who just saw his lead assistant walk out the door. That'll be a facet to this as well. The October games, November games, December games, and the midseason tournament, which I'm not even really sure how that works. January games, even early January, that are still kind of considered the beginning of the year. It could be a, a bit up and down for this team as they're trying to find themselves as a unit. The important thing is to be healthy and comfortable with each other by late February, early March. That has not changed, but I do like the court time. I like that they're spending time on the floor together growing together as a unit, and they'll do that again tonight. And Middleton's going to play tonight. I can't tell you the last time Chris Middleton played in a preseason game. They're all going to be out there. The core four will be out there starting at Pfizer Forum for the preseason finale tonight. I think that was all of the Bucks news. That Terry Stotts curveball, though, came out of nowhere on Thursday. 
Let's get into the Green Bay Packers. Should we start with the Packer memory, the Packer Bronco memory? There are a couple of good Packer Bronco memories. There are no bad ones, right? I can't think of any bad Packer Bronco game. Can you? No, nothing's nothing's springing up. A game that would have gone poorly for the Packers, Packers and Broncos, nothing. I actually texted the boys in a group text yesterday. Some Packer beat writer or podcaster they put out a montage, a highlight video of the 2011 Packer Bronco game at Lambeau Field. Packers won that game 49 to 24. I just said, "Take me back, take me back to this offense." The highlight package, and again, it's a highlight package. So, what do you expect it to be? It's Aaron Rodgers in 2011 after the Super Bowl championship and the Super Bowl MVP, and he's going to win his first MVP that year. And they're going to be 15 and one in the regular season, and nothing bad will happen after that. They're just cooking this Bronco team. Rodgers is getting the ball quickly. He's getting the ball out fast. He's not agitating the fan base yet. This is pre-annoying Aaron Rodgers. All he's doing is slinging the rock like a Hall of Fame quarterback. He's throwing it to Jennings in his prime. James Jones in his prime. Jordy Nelson's breaking out. Jermichael Finley's out there. Donald Driver's still catching touchdowns. And it's just the Broncos couldn't stop him. They were playing a different game. And after watching the offense scuffle a bit this year, which is to be expected, I'm not disparaging the offense right now with Jordan Love having made five starts, and it's like the Bucks; It's a learning process right now, and there are plenty of growing pains happening. It was just amazing to see that offense and Mike McCarthy dialing up every play. Just all of it worked. 49 points they put on the Broncos that day. What a highlight package that was. There's also this one from 2007, that random year where we saw a resurgence out of Favre the last year in Green Bay. They started out so hot, they had no expectations that year, and then they had this Monday nighter in Denver. Remember, it was tied at 13 going into overtime, and on the first play of overtime, Favre to Jennings. Play action from the 18. Won it all. Deep down the field. It is holding by Greg Jennings. The Packers win in overtime. One play. Remember, that was the year Tony Kornheiser was in the Monday Night Booth. What an odd time that was. That Was the was that around the Arby's 5 for 5 year? <laughs> a lot of weird stuff was happening in 2007. I was eating 16 sandwiches for $10, and Tony Kornheiser was on Monday Night Football. Anyway, that was a good memory, too. The one that I think of, though, and I don't know why this one sticks out in my brain, 1993. The first year that Reggie White was a Green Bay Packer. And remember that offseason where free agency was getting hit in the NFL. He was the biggest name out there. And where is he going to go? And there's no chance he's coming to Green Bay. And then God told him, God slash Mike Holmgren, who was a kind of a God in the Midwest at that time, told him to take a visit to Green Bay. And he was swept away. And the feeling was that this is where he belonged. We couldn't believe it. Even at nine years old, barely understanding the deeper impact of Reggie coming to Green Bay, it was just, it was hard to fathom that one of the greatest players in the NFL was going to be a Green Bay Packer. They signed him that deal, whatever it is. I'd have to look up that deal. I bet the deal will blow you away. Let's see what, I can get it quick. Reggie White contract Packers, 1993. This was a gargantuan sum of money in 1993. He signed a four-year deal. For $17 million. And we almost fainted in 1993 when they signed that deal. Four years, 17 mil. The beginning of that year in 93, that year was a, a tough year in some ways. They make the playoffs. I think they win a playoff game that year. Favre threw 19 touchdowns and 24 picks. You want to talk about growing pains and living with some of those and Jordan Love and a young quarterback. That was Favre's second year in the NFL. It was a different game. I acknowledge that. Still, 
19 touchdowns and 24 interceptions, and they had Mark Brunel on the bench. I know many of you have probably seen the clip of Holmgren. I don't know what game it was in 93 where Favre threw another mind-numbing, bash-your-brains-against-the-wall interception. And Holmgren knows what he has in Brunel. He knows he's going to be a pretty good NFL player. And he goes, put the backup in, put the backup in. You can just feel that his frustration has bubbled over like a boiling pot of water. And then he takes a beat, and this beat maybe changes the course of Packer history. Honest to God. He says, put the backup again, go put the backup in. He can't be throwing passes like that. Then he takes a beat, and he says, wait, 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 wait. All right. Leave Brett in the game, but he's got to understand. I think he's talking to Andy Reid. He's got to understand he cannot throw passes like that anymore. Think about the ripple effect of that year where Favre really struggled. And in that moment, if you go to Mark Brunel, and Mark Brunel does that night what he did in Jacksonville when he eventually got there, where he was an all-pro, Pro Pro Bowl quarterback, potential MVP quarterback in a few years there, and he had legs, he could scramble. That was kind of Brunel's game, too. Imagine if he puts Brunel in, and Brunel throws two touchdowns and no picks and leads him back to a win in whatever game that was. Then he gets the start maybe next week, or Favre has his confidence shattered a bit or shaken a bit. Not that it seems like Favre ever had a problem with that. Maybe in that moment, though. Favre starts the next week. He struggles again. Fan base says, well, put Brunel back in. You know, you can just sort of see the butterfly effect of what would have happened there over the course of the 90s if he makes that move. That little 20-second hesitation where he reigned the rage in for a while maybe changes the entire course of history for the Packers and for Brett Favre and winning the Super Bowl a few years later. Anyway, that year had a lot of that going on in 93. And White signs that big deal, and he did not have a major impact at the beginning of that year to the point where the same things that would happen now were happening, except they happened on sports radio. They didn't happen on Twitter. Fans were getting upset. We're paying this guy $10 million. Midwest dad. Midwest dad getting upset. We're paying this guy $4 million this year, and he doesn't have a sack yet, or he had a handful of sacks or something like that. This was the sixth or seventh game of the year, this Broncos game. The fans were getting a little frustrated not seeing the result of this major Hall of Fame impact player on the defense. Then that night, it was an evening game. Maybe it was Sunday night football. I can't remember. It was on TNT. This is how far back we're going. And you had Elway on the Broncos. They had the old Broncos jerseys, which are just, I don't know if they're wearing them this weekend. The cream kind of sickles or the orange jerseys with that great blue helmet, the baby blue helmet with the D logo and the Bronco bursting out of it. Packers that night had a 32-7 lead in the third quarter. Cruise control to a win. And all of a sudden, John Elway does what John Elway did for a lot of his career, started a comeback. It ends up getting to a 30-27 game late in the fourth quarter. Broncos score, let me do some quick math here, 20 unanswered points. And Reggie White had a sack earlier in the night. And then on the final drive, The Broncos are getting into Packer territory. I think they're just at the Packer 40-yard line and threatening to at least get a field goal to tie the game. Under a minute and a half remaining. And Reggie comes up with two game-ending sacks on third and fourth down back-to-back. I'm going to play you the entirety of the audio. The audio is about 60-ish seconds of the broadcast that night. The first sack is the third down sack, which pushed them back to the 50. And then on fourth and long, they have to go for it in that moment. And White gets another sack for about a 12-yard loss. Turnover on downs, Packers get the ball and get into victory formation. This was Reggie's coming out party, though, for Green Bay. As you're coming, and Elway's going to be sacked in number 92. Reggie White has been relentless. Is there. 
Hey, you have to double-team them, we said it, on the critical downs. For the most part, they've done that. But now it's a big wide split by White against Freeman. And White, on the single team, has won that battle all night long. It's only when they've had a double-team has Reggie White been stuck. His second sack of the night. Fourth down, 19 yards to go. Elway being flushed and sacked again by Reggie White. Well, they paid him a lot of money, and he's earned his money the last two plays. Yeah, you know, for a while there, all the money they paid him, it wasn't looking like the Louisiana purchase, was it? But he's, he's earned his money tonight. I mean, he has played remarkably well and not just on the sacks but in the critical moments you know you have to double team a guy like reggie white or he can change the nature of the game and he did exactly that he just overwhelmed whatever tackle that was trying to guard him in those two plays he buries elway in the turf i think we actually let me see if i can get the video back up here i think we get like a reggie he just wants one more chance at and there's a chant of reggie starting throughout lambeau field and it was that feeling from the fan base of, oh, <laughs> this is the guy. That's the guy we thought we were getting. Packers hang on for a 30-27 to win that night. That was what really got Reggie on track in a Packer jersey. I'm sure most athletes will tell you if you watch any interviews with them when they sign those big deals, even if they're staying with a team or they're leaving a team. And in that moment where it was one of the most discussed off-season talking points, where would Reggie go? I bet he felt a ton of pressure and maybe was trying to do too much in those early games, and he let the game come to him that night and just decimated that right tackle that was trying to match up with him in those two moments. A hat trick of sacks and the two sacks that basically ended and won the game for the Packers. Yeah, a lot of good Packer-Bronco memories and none bad. That sets up this weekend. After a bye week, we finally get a Packers Sunday where we have a Packer game in the fall. I've missed them. They had a Thursday game, a Monday game, and a bye week. I feel like we're wasting these beautiful fall days not having a Packer game and haven't really had a home game in a while, haven't had a win since September 24th. This is a game the Packers are favored by a point. It looks like Aaron Jones is going to play, and God help me, if Aaron Jones is healthy, I assume he's not going to go out there if he's not fully healthy. Hopefully they learn their lesson from trying to put him out there on a limited snap count against Detroit a few weeks ago or three weeks ago. My assumption is that if Aaron Jones is out there, he's fully healthy. And we're going to talk right now about the same stat we talked about on whatever day it was, Monday or Friday. When Aaron Jones touches the ball 15 times, this team is 35-2. and two. It is kind of crazy. He's only touched the ball 15 times in a game, 37 times in his career. He's played 110 games. First of all, that ratio is way off. But the success they have, 35-2 and two, when he touches the ball 15 times, is insane. It's basically a win every time. If he is healthy and on the field, which it looks like he's going to be on Sunday, and we have Matt LaFleur have him touch the ball nine times and they lose, and then in the postgame press conference, Matt LaFleur says something to the effect of, well, you know, that's on me. i got to be better about finding ways to get Aaron Jones the ball. If that happens coming out of Sunday against this Bronco defense, I might lose my mind. I may I may bubble over like Mike Holmgren when Mike when Brett Favre when Mike Favre threw that terrible pick in '93 and he almost went to Mark Brunel. I can't handle that anymore. If he's healthy and he's out there and he doesn't touch the ball 15 times, send Matt Lafleur to jail. Okay, we're gonna have a real discussion. I know there's a lot of different talking points with a very young team right now. A lot of them revolve around Jordan Love. I'm telling you right now, this offense looks bad on Sunday against this Bronco defense. And even if Jordan Love looks bad, that's not the first person I'm getting mad at. 
I'm starting to get mad at Matt LaFleur. We threw out there the theory three or four weeks ago that maybe Matt LaFleur is just handsomer Mike Sherman. We'll find out if they can't make the adjustments. And he did the accountability thing again during the week. They did a self-scout during the bye week, which they do every bye week, every year. They look back at all the tape, and they do a self-scout and a self-assessment. And he had this long press conference on Wednesday where he talked about his play calling has to be better. The rhythm has to be better. They've got to get the ball out quicker. Hand up. It's on me. Remember when we thought that was cute in 2019 at the beginning of his tenure as head coach? And we all, well, yeah, okay, he's taking responsibility. That's good. That's Midwest dad voice. That may be Midwest dad voice. He's, he's doing it. He's, well, I love accountability. I love a guy, like a man who can take accountability. A man with eyebrows like that and accountability, that's a guy we can win with. We all loved it. Well, when you do it every week for six years, sometimes it starts to grate a bit on the fan base. Okay, if you're raising your hand and saying it's your fault every time, we're going to believe you. People are going to start to believe you, and they're going to say, well, if it's your fault every week over the course of six years when things go wrong, maybe we need to move on from you. If Aaron Jones is healthy and playing and gets less than 15 touches, I'm going to lose it. Sounds like he should be back. It looks like Christian Watson's a full go. He is totally off the injury report. That is also good news. Some iffy news injury-wise, Jair Alexander had the back injury crop up. He played on Monday in Vegas two weeks ago. You could tell he was hesitant to tackle, especially in the run game, which was glaring on some of those plays. I guess if he's only 50% or 60%, you want him to spend his energy and all that kind of stuff on covering people and not making tackles in the run game, but they were exploiting that against the Raiders were on that Monday night game. He was not on the injury report to begin the week. Then he was on Thursday, which is always concerning with a back injury. It sounds like he's trending towards playing. Devondre Campbell likes, looks like he's not going to play on Sunday. Quay Walker looks like he will be on the field on Sunday, and he avoided a major knee injury. That's good news. They're getting close-ish to healthy and should have some of their important parts out there. Now, we are looking for steps forward here from the offense, from the play calling, and from Jordan Love. We talked on the post-Raider podcast about the concerning regression for Jordan Love. Looked very good in the first two weeks, had that fourth-quarter comeback against the Saints in Week 3, and then it hasn't been that good. Against the Lions, I would argue the primary problem there was he had literally no time to make any decision. He got swamped in that game. And then last week, the offensive line was an issue, too, or two weeks ago. The offensive line was an issue, too, but he also was seeing ghosts. He made some bad reads, some bad throws, and turned the ball over a bunch. Had the three interceptions and no touchdowns on that week. We said the defenses have adjusted. They've seen more film now on Jordan Love. He's made five starts. They are adjusting to the Packer offense and what Love is looking for. And sometimes, like a young quarterback, he's looking for that one quick read. We saw that with that interception over the middle against the Raiders where he didn't even think there was any chance a Raider guy would be there, and he basically threw it right at him, that first pick. Defenses have been in the film room, and they have adjusted. Now, can Matt LaFleur and Love adjust and the Packer offense adjust? We need to see some progressive steps forward, particularly against this defense. You're not going out there and taking out a top-10 defense. Where if they struggled again, you'd say, well, okay, still the sixth start for love and the offense is young and it's a very good defense they're playing. This is the 31st or 32nd in a 32-team league ranked defense pretty much across the board. This Packer offense is not the Dolphin offense. However, remember three weeks ago or whatever it was, the Dolphins scored 70, 7-0, 70 points. They almost broke the modern single-game record against this Bronco defense. The Bronco defense is abhorrent. It is trash. You must. And I'm not saying this is going to determine whether they win or lose. You obviously want the Packers to win. We're going to pick them to win. Gambling segment coming up. They're one-point favorites. Even if you don't win this game, 
We need to leave this game with a two-touchdown or three-touchdown, no-turnover performance for Jordan Love where the play calling is crisp and this team scores 25, 27, 30 points. You'd love 30. You'd love to put 30 up against this team. We need to see a bounce back. We need to see getting back from the regression of what we've seen the past couple of weeks. Against this defense, no excuses. If Aaron Jones is out there and Watson is out there, you've got the full extra week to prepare. The offense must look better on Sunday, and we are going to take them. We're going to we're going to take them against my better judgment. We'll get to the pick segment coming up here in a second. Let's talk quickly about the Badgers. They're at Illinois. It's a 2:30 kickoff. I'm also going to throw money at the Badgers. This is going to be a dumb weekend. Let me tell you, I looked at all the lines for college football in the NFL. This is two weeks in a row now. I have not found a lot that I like. We barely escaped with a winning week the last week, three, two, and one. I like even fewer games this week. That's probably why I'm taking the teams that I feel like I know the best. Badgers coming off of that terrible performance against Iowa at home. We got a front row seat for that, or not a front row seat, a 50th row seat for that. Me and the boys were out there last Saturday. Scored only six points. Tanner Mordecai went down. We discussed on Monday, hand injury, broken hand or broken bone in his hand. Still nobody for the Badgers has quite said how long he's going to be out or what his prognosis is. Prognosis, negative. Is he going to be out for the whole year? Is he out for a few weeks? Maybe they're waiting to see. Maybe they're just waiting to see what happens now with some of these young quarterbacks. If they look good, perhaps they'll just roll with that. If they look bad, maybe at some point you see Mordecai back out there. This feels like it could be a season ender, though. You have the rematch with Brett Bielema. Like we talked about on Monday, the Iowa loss was bad. It was a season low. Some were comparing it to the home loss to Burt and the Illini last year. I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't disparage you if you did, though. I mean, I understand frustrations were running high after that Iowa game on Saturday. I felt like that was a program low in the past 20 years, or at least in the Chris era, losing at home the way they did, where Bielema and Illinois just bullied them. They were aggressive defensively, and they ran it right down their throats. It was a Badger script game from 2013, what the Illini did to them at Camp Randall. After that game, of course, Paul Chris gets fired, Leonard takes over, and the whole ripple effect of that is felt in the offseason. You don't want to lose twice to Bielema. Bielema was able to get a win against unbeaten Maryland last week. Maryland had an extremely soft schedule their first five games. They were 5-0 and entering that game. They were 14-point favorites. I took them. And not only did they not cover the 14 points, they lost outright to the Illini, who come into this weekend 3-4. and four. We are going to see Braden Locke at a full start. We discussed that on Monday as well. Now, after Saturday, we'll get just a little better view of what we think Braden Locke can be. Not a whole view. It's one start. I said on Monday, it's hard to assess the way he looked against Iowa. Redshirt freshman quarterback did not get any snaps or any run with the number ones in practice that week. And he comes into a game against a good defense where the entire offense is struggling and he's down. He went 15 of 30. Some of the throws look sharp. He had a pick late. He had a fumble late that was costly. It's tough to give him a grade on Saturday. Coming out of this Saturday with a full week of prep and working with the ones and having a game plan sort of tailored to what his strengths are, what they are, we don't know. We'll find out hopefully on Saturday. Coming out of Saturday, we'll have a much better idea of what you may have in Braden Locke. Braden Locke's a four-star. He's a four-star transfer from Mississippi State. You've got another four-star transfer in Nick Evers behind him, and you've got that wild card in Miles Burkett behind him. It'll be good to see some of these guys. Those guys could all be back next year. Some could be back. One could be a starter. None could be back in the transfer portal era. 
it is critical, I would think, for this coaching staff to get a look at these guys in Big Ten games. You're at a point now where this team's probably going nowhere. The likelihood of winning the Big Ten West seems extremely low when you figure you're definitely losing to Ohio State. That gives you two conference losses. Iowa has one conference loss, and they have the tiebreaker. You need them to win every game that's not the Ohio State game, and Iowa would have to lose two games, and their schedule is 10-ply. Their schedule is baby food soft the rest of the way. With that defense, they should probably win out, and they're probably going to be 11-1 going to the Big Ten championship game. And if they can get an upset there, probably not going to happen. If they could get an upset there, though, all of a sudden they get into the college football playoff, (laughs) that's a tough pill to digest. Anyway... With where you're at in the year now, where you're likely going to be a 7 or 8 win, hopefully 9, 7 or 8 win team, and you're going to be playing on a bowl game on December 27th at 9 p.m. in Arizona, you should find out what you have, especially in Locke and Evers, if you can get Evers a shot. If Locke comes out there and seizes it, I guess I don't know what the likelihood is then that you would just throw a bone to a guy like Evers or Miles Burkett toward the end of the year where you're really going nowhere. If Locke comes out and has a two or three touchdown, no turnover performance, and then he's able to keep his head above water against Ohio State and they only lose by three touchdowns instead of four or five, if he's able to put some successive games together, maybe that's what you need to find out and what you need to know. I don't know how likely it is you see another quarterback if Locke can perform. It'll be good to see him, though, on the field with this team, with the Phil Longo offense, and see if it looks any different than it did with Tanner Mordecai through the first five-ish games. That is coming up on Saturday, 2.30 kickoff, and the Badgers are favorites, two-and-a-half-point favorites at Illinois Saturday afternoon. Let's talk real quick about baseball. <laughs> I put a, I put money on the Phillies this week before game three last night in the NLCS against the Diamondbacks. Very appropriate that the Phillies look like a wagon that cannot be derailed. I put money on them. And they hit the e-break and lose game three and are in a 2-1 series now. The second I got financially invested in this team. The way they played with the 10-0 drubbing in game two and the way they're popping home runs. I know Brewers fans get frustrated sometimes with the team's inability to play small ball. You see a lot of that conversation on Twitter when the Brewers have a runner on second with nobody out and they can't get him around to score. A runner on third with less than two outs and they can't hit a sack fly. This Philly series is showing you exactly why you need boppers and why you play for the home run ball. These guys are popping home runs like it's BP out there, except (laughs) until game three in Arizona. After the game two win, I put a futures bet on the Phillies at plus 120, still plus money, which is why I did it. I thought they'd be minus money at that point, given the momentum and the way they were winning, and they're the biggest talking point, even though the Rangers up until the last couple of games were unbeaten in the playoffs. The Phillies seemed like they were becoming the national favorite to win the World Series. When I saw plus money, I jumped right in on that. Max bet. We are financially hitched now to the Phillies wagon. And they lose 2-1 to in Game 3. It was crazy. Did you see the ticket prices on the secondary market in Arizona? A travesty. They should be a shame. Where's my shame bell? Shame. Shame. You could get NLCS Game 3 tickets. And yeah, they're down 2-0. You could get NLCS Game 3 tickets in Arizona on StubHub for $12. If you are selling NLCS home game tickets for $12 on your secondary market, you don't deserve to have the NLCS. That should count as a loss for you somehow. And a ton of Phillies fans went down because Phillies tickets in Philly at the bank are probably three to four to five hundred dollars. It's actually cheaper if you're a Philly fan to grab a hundred and seventy dollars Southwest flight and a ticket to go down to Arizona and spend the few days down there than it is to go to your home ballpark. 
That series is 2-1. Astros, like you figured they would. They were down 2-0 after losing two home games against the Rangers. Everybody riding them off. And then they win two in Texas. That series is even a two. I just want to throw out there that we are financially committed. If you're listening to this podcast, you now have an acquaintance. You have a friend. You have a podcaster that has money on the Phillies. If you want to join up and be a mercenary the rest of the way. Those all get back underway. Phillies in Diamondbacks tonight. And the series is shifting for the ALCS. They won't play again until Saturday. And then what else did I want to hit on? I want to hit on one thing. Oh, Badger Volleyball. Shout out to Badger Volleyball. They sweep away Ohio State. I've always said we're a volleyball school. I have always said that, that, that Wisconsin is a volleyball school. Would it be great if the football program would get back to prominence? Sure, but we don't need it. We're a volleyball school. Volleyball dusted Ohio State Volleyball this week. What's going to happen when the two football programs meet up in two weeks? That got them to 18-0 on the year. They are the number one ranked team in the country, and they have a showdown with Nebraska, the number two team in the country, on Saturday. I'm not sure what time it is. I would imagine it's going to be on TV. Here's a take for you. In the next 20 years, yeah, let's go shorter than that. That's too much time. In the next 10 years, I think you're going to see volleyball become, college volleyball become a more primetime sport. It's a fun sport to watch. I even filled in, even though I don't know a ton about volleyball, in a pinch, some of the D3 schools I call basketball for needed a volleyball broadcaster. Whoever it was that was doing it was sick or couldn't make it or whatever. And they had me call a few games, and I learned enough to get by. But I remember sitting in the stands and calling those games and thinking, this is pretty fun. The crowd was really into it, even at the D3 level. It's fast-paced. The points come fast and furious. And the whole thing was over in an hour. I said, you're paying me the same amount you pay me for a two-and-a-half-hour football broadcast and two-hour basketball broadcast for a 55-minute volleyball broadcast? And they said, sure, why not? Why not? It's fast-paced. It's entertaining. The crowds get revved up. Every time I have it on, I am entertained. I think that that sport is going to continue to catapult in the standings of favorite American sports. And you saw Nebraska earlier this year. They sold out their football stadium for a Nebraska volleyball game. 90,000 fans. Probably too cold to do that this weekend. Number one Badgers, number two Nebraska on Saturday. That is exciting. All right, let's make some picks. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talks. Here comes the money. Never tell me the odds. If someone gives you 10,000 to 1 on anything, you take it. That's a cool G, Daddy. Oh, now you got to let it ride. So we did somehow go 3-2-1 and one last week. We are now over 500. We are 17-16-1 and one on the year. I prefaced this a few minutes ago. I hate every pick. I hate all these picks. Which, if you're a degenerate gambler, you should at least be confident as you're laying the pick down. Most of the time, 98% of the time, when I make a bet or a parlay or a teaser, I think there's no way this isn't going to hit. John, you've done it again. You son of a gun, you did it again. And then 10 minutes into the first game, I think, oh, why did I do that? (laughs) So stupid. You stupid idiot. That's a feeling you should have when you lay the bet down. I feel good about none of these, which maybe it'll work out. The biggest college football game of the weekend is Ohio State hosting Penn State. Number four versus number seven. Ohio State minus four and a half. I've seen this script before. I'm not saying it can't go the other way. I've seen this script where another top ten team is at number one Ohio State or at number three Ohio State or in this case number four. And you think, ooh, we could have a close game here. And then Ohio State's up 28-0 before you can blink. I'm not saying it's going to go like that. I just think it's a tough environment to get a win in on the road at the horseshoe. I will take Ohio State minus four and a half to win basically by a touchdown at home against Penn State on Saturday. I will take USC minus seven against Utah. What an ugly performance from USC against Notre Dame. That's one of the bets we lost on Saturday. Caleb Williams, three picks. He had a Jordan Love game. Three picks, no 
touchdowns. That probably hurt his, his Heisman candidacy. And USC then suffers their first loss. They would then have to win out to have a real shot at the college football playoffs at this point. They have one loss on the year. They're at home against Utah. Utah is ranked, but Utah's offense has been a mess this year. They're a good defensive team. I think USC's offense is still better than Utah's defense, even though the Trojans looked horrible in South Bend on Saturday. They're back at home. They're in the friendly confines. I don't know that Utah can score enough with them. I'll take USC minus seven to win by a touchdown against Utah. And then I am taking Wisconsin. Lord help me. I think Braden Locke will do enough. They're going to win this game 17 to 13. <laughs> That's what I think. It's going to be ugly. I mean, it's not going to be uh, Bob Ross painting here. They're only two and a half point favorites. Like we said on Monday, to me now, with all the young quarterbacks starting, any one of these games is a coin flip. They could win this game or lose this game. Any game. This game, the Indiana game on the road, Northwestern at home, Northwestern, even when they're a powerhouse, even when the Badgers are a powerhouse, (laughs) seem to be their kryptonite. That's always a questionable game. Minnesota on the road with the axe on the line. At this point, everything feels like a coin flip. I will take the Badgers to bounce back against Illinois, given what happened last year and some of the players that are carrying over from that year. Given the dismal performance in front of the home crowd on Saturday, I think Braden Locke maybe gets him revved up a bit just having a new guy back there. I'll take him to win by a field goal. Minus two and a half at Illinois. I will take the Packers against Denver. I could see them losing this game 27-24, something like that. Maybe the defense doesn't show up. We need to see the offense play better. I'll take a minus one. It's a coin flip game. With the extra weeks prepared, Denver's one and five. Worst defense in the league. If you don't win this game, then it's going to be a season where they win five games. Minus one at Denver. I will take the Chargers plus six against the Chiefs. Chargers always play close games. It's remarkable. It doesn't matter who their quarterback is. Phillip Rivers for 15-plus years. Now Justin Herbert. The most consistent thing in my life on fall Sundays is the Chargers playing in the 325 window and scrambling to try to get back in a game late. They're always down. They always threaten and never quite get over the hump. That's been going on since I was in college. Because they play close games and because Kansas City's offense so far has not looked like the Chiefs' offenses that we've seen in the past, and a part of that could be that they know what they have, they know how good they are, and they're just lollygagging their way through the regular season. Chargers are catching six points. It is in Kansas City. There will be a Taylor Swift element here as well, I'm certain. Did you see the Packers play in Kansas City later this year? And the rumor is, because Simone Biles, we haven't talked a lot about that, but Simone Biles dates Packers safety Jonathan Owens. He has not gotten a lot of playing time. He's primarily a special teams player, or they're married. It sounds like Simone Biles is planning on being at that game, as is Taylor Swift, and they could be in the same box together. (laughs) What a scene. What a cataclysmic event at Arrowhead. Anyway, the game's at Arrowhead, so you assume Taylor will be there. I just think the Chargers play so many close games. You're giving me almost a touchdown. I'll take them plus six. And then (laughs) I'm taking the Bears, too. I hated these picks as I wrote them down behind the scenes. As I'm saying them now out loud, I hate them even more. Bears plus two and a half at home against the Raiders. You know I've been beating this Raiders drum all year. They're the worst team in the NFL. I have the under on them on six and a half season wins. When we made that pick, I hinted that I thought about taking them as the worst team in the league. You can bet on that before the year, who you think the worst team in the league will be. I did not do that, but when I said I took the under on six and a half total wins, I said in the same breath, I think that they could be the worst team in the league. They could be a three-win team. Well, that would mean they'd have to lose out. They are three and three. They have had back-to-back wins now. Bears at home. I just don't believe in the Raiders. I just, at some point, I think those true colors are going to show. Bears are catching points at home. I'll take them plus two and a half. Chargers plus six at KC. Packers minus one at Denver. Wisconsin minus two and a half at Illinois. USC minus seven at home against Utah. And Ohio State minus four and a half at home against Penn State. 
That'll do it for us here. Hopefully coming back with a Victory Monday podcast for you. We have not had one in a long time. Literally, it's been almost a calendar month. Hopefully, we're coming back with that. We'll recap a little bit about that final Bucks preseason game, of course, the Badger game, and we'll get things set up for what we have remaining in the baseball playoffs as we're knocking on the door of the World Series by Monday's podcast as well. Have a happy, safe weekend. We'll chat with you then.